Great. Good morning. Morning, morning. morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. As Rich said, my name's Tom. I'm part of the church here. This is my wife, Chloe. Give us a wave, Chloe. Yeah, we've got, we've got two sons, Caden and Rocco, who lots of you will know. And we've got a third child on the way. If you, if you, yeah, that's a big cheer for that. If you hadn't noticed, then just open your eyes a bit. It's getting obvious. Actually, this morning is going to be about opening your eyes. A little segue there. See what I've done? It's going to be about perspective. We're, we're going to talk about perspective this morning. Perspective's a really interesting thing. It, it changes how we see things. Do you guys, you, you'll have seen the blue dress, white dress thing, right? Yeah, if you haven't seen it, you need to look it up and just know you're either going to see a blue dress or you're going you're to see a blue dress with black lines or you're going to see a, a white dress with gold lines and no one will be able to convince you otherwise that it's the other way around. It's a thing. Look for it. It's to do with like rods and cones in your eyes and how you perceive colour. Or you'll have heard that little voice saying, Laurel. Have you heard that? Laurel. Or it says, Yanny. But it only says one of them, it is the weirdest thing. We did it to the boys yesterday, they were like, Yanny. I'm like, no, you've just, just listen again, please, boys. It definitely says Laurel. Perspective, right? That's to do with something to do with um, pitch, how we detect pitch. And you can hear both of those things there. We see things in different ways to do with perspective. There's um, almost certainly an apocryphal story, an untrue story, but it serves to illustrate a point of um, a group of people who've lived all their lives in a, in a forest, like deep in a forest, and all they've seen is the trees. Very literally, they can't see the woods for the trees. All they can see is right there in front of them. And the story goes that someone's taken from there and taken out, and they're shown an animal that they've seen many times before right there in the woods, right there amongst the trees. But this animal is off in the distance, and it is, they can't identify it. Because suddenly it doesn't look like what they've seen. It's far off. It's like an insect. It's tiny. Perspective changes how we see things. Perspective changes what we think about political debate. Where we stand, which side of the channel we stand on, changes how we view Brexit. Our political leanings, our opinions and beliefs changes how we view those things. We're going to wrestle a little with perspective this morning, we're going to look at a story where, how you, where what you see in this story is very dependent on your perspective. We're going to come to an understanding that perspective can change everything. How you see Your perspective changes how you see this account, this story, and how you see this story changes how you see everything. We're going to conclude this morning that who you see when you see Jesus changes how you see everything. Let's pray before we start. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words. Father, we thank you for your son. Father, we thank you that we can see you when we see your son. This morning, Lord, we ask, would we see the son more clearly? We ask, would we see Jesus? Would we see him for who he is? Lord, we ask, would you open our eyes? 
Lord, we ask, would you open the eyes of our hearts? Would we see you more clearly? Lord, we, we ask, so we want to see you, Lord. It's what we want. We want to know you. We want to know you, King Jesus. We do ask for that this morning. Lord, we ask, would your words allow us to see you ever more clearly this morning? Would we be transformed as we look upon you? Amen. Perspective. How we see things. I just want to just start with one thing which isn't up for debate, where you can't really have a different perspective on it, and that is the truth of Jesus living as a man on earth. It's just generally agreed upon by historians, by Christian historians, non-Christian historians, that Jesus lived. He was a man that lived around the Sea of Galilee at the time that the Gospel accounts say he lived. That's not up for debate. And the book that we're looking at, the book of Luke, itself is written as, as a history at He says, I want to show you really clearly what happened. That's how he starts. He says, I want to lay out for you exactly what happened. I want to show you a historical account. This is what happened. So the question this morning isn't, did Jesus live? If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, you're you're here looking in at something. I, I just want to start with the position that it's not a question of whether Jesus lived. There was a man that lived. But the big question the question that everything depends upon is who Jesus was. It's a question that Luke's really concerned with when he writes his book. That's why he has like a genealogy, like a family tree at the start. He wants to talk about who is this person that this book is about. It's why he has things like the tests of Jesus in the desert. It's why he focuses on who Jesus spends time with and the stories that he tells. He wants to show us who Jesus is. It's one of the questions that the people around Jesus are concerned with. If you read through the book of Luke, you'll find again and again people asking something along the lines of, who is this person? It might be a different question, but behind that question is, who is he? If you were here a few weeks ago and you would have heard Steph speak on when uh, Jesus' parents take him to the temple and that Simeon's there, and Simeon, when he sees Jesus, he prays, To God, and he says, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles, for glory to your people, Israel. And it says his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Who is this? Who is this? In Luke 4, when Jesus goes to the synagogue and he opens the scroll... He opens part of the Old Testament, he opens Isaiah, and he reads to the people, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news. There's more to it. And he sits down and he says, this has been accomplished. This is fulfilled in your hearing. And the people, they go, isn't that Joseph's son? Who is he? Who is this guy? You get later on when... Um, Jesus is going and he's healing people and people are just blown away and they say things like, we have seen remarkable things this day. Who is this man? the, The Pharisees, when they question Jesus about eating grains of corn on the Sabbath, they say, why... Why do you do what is unlawful on the Sabbath? What is it about... Who are you? 
Maybe they're asking, who do you think you are? Who are you? It's a big concern of the book when John the Baptist sends his um, followers to Jesus and they ask, are you the expected one? It's the big concern of the people around Jesus. Who is he? When Jesus steals the waves, he takes his disciples out in the boat and he, he goes to sleep and there's a storm. Jesus sleeps through the storm and the disciples are freaking out. And then Jesus wakes up and he calms the storm. And the disciples say to each other, who is this that he commands the winds and the water? And they obey him. Who is this? It's a question that Jesus asks one of his disciples. Peter, let me read you this account in Luke. It says, now it happens as he was praying alone, as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. This is our question this morning. Who do you say Jesus is? Everything depends on your answer to that question. Who do you say Jesus is? Because who you see when you see Jesus changes how you see everything. Let's, let's read the passage for this morning. Uh, we're in Luke 19. So if you've got a Bible, do, do turn there. It's going to come up on the screen behind me. Thanks so much, Josh. I'm going to read this account. Um, we're going to read this account a few times because I want us to see it from a few different perspectives. I'm going to read it and we'll unpack it a little bit. This account, some of you will know really well, it's called the triumphal entry. It, it comes after Jesus has been doing lots of teaching and we, we come to this point where he's going to enter Jerusalem. He's going into Jerusalem. It says this, And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent, were, those who were sent away so those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. We're going to read a little more later, but I want us to pause here. If, you, if you've grown up going to church or you've been around church for a while, this passage is really familiar. It doesn't strike you as particularly strange. We know it really well. In, in other church traditions, it's called Palm Sunday. That's because in other accounts in, in the Gospels, this, this is recorded in all the Gospels, this story, this, this account, 
In other times, they, they, as well as laying down their cloaks, they pull down palm branches or hosannas is what they're called. They, they pull down hosannas and they wave them and they lay that, them in his path. It's called Palm Sunday and we're really familiar to us. I want to suggest to you though, I want you to look beyond its familiarity and I want you to see this really strange story. Really strange story. Jesus, they're traveling along with all his disciples and he stops and he says, in the village ahead, you're going to find a donkey. That in itself is a pretty odd thing to say, right? I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm telling you, you're going to find a donkey up ahead. It's an odd thing to prophesy. That's what it is, like a prediction. Like a, God said, there's a, don, there's a donkey up ahead in this village. What I want you to do is I want you to go and get this donkey. That, that's what a cult is, a young male donkey. He sent them off to get this donkey. They don't own the donkey. This isn't a donkey that like, has been put there in advance. So he's saying, go, and go to this place and get this donkey that we don't own and untie it. And if they ask you why you're untying it, say, the Lord has need of it. Have you heard a more cryptic thing? Imagine someone's there just like into your car, unlocking it. Don't worry, the Lord has need of it. <laughs> and what are the owners thinking? They're like, is this, are you, you're taking our donkey. Are you, you're going to bring it back, right? And yet in the story, there's no sense that the owners complain of this use of their donkey. It's a really strange story. And then they, they bring the donkey back to Jesus and they put Jesus on the donkey. I want you to picture this. Donkeys are small. They have little legs. We don't know how tall Jesus is, but Jesus is a fully grown man. A man on a donkey is a pretty odd sight. Because the legs just, just doesn't match. You can imagine him having to lift his feet up a bit or having to sort of just... His, leg, his feet are going to be practically touching the floor. Donkeys are not graceful. This isn't like a big horse. This isn't like click, clop, click, clop, click, clop. This is whoa. donkey, right? This is like uneven. Like If you've seen a donkey move, this isn't going to be a particularly graceful sight. This is a weird thing. We call it the triumphal entry. And then the disciples, the crowd of disciples start taking off their cloaks and laying them in the road. And then, to this site, they start proclaiming, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You kind of get why the Pharisees rebuke them. It's a pretty odd thing to be going on. A fascinating account. What we must understand is that the disciples, the owners of the donkey, this whole multitude of people, they see something. They see something here that is not there in the, the literal written account. They know something. They stand from a point of perspective where they get something really important about this scene. Why is there this big concern through Jesus' life as to who he is? There's this big concern about who Jesus is because this is at a time when there's been hundreds of years of prophecy, hundreds of years of promises about someone who was to come. You see, if you don't know your Bible well, there's the New Testament, there's the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. The Old Testament's written 
400, the last bit of the Old Testament is 400 years before this. Lots of it is much, much older than that. And all through that, that ancient text, there's promises. Promises of someone who is to come. So when John the Baptist's followers come to Jesus and say, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? This is a really specific question. They're asking, are you the Christ of God? Are you the Messiah? Are you the chosen one? Are you the son of David? Are you the king of Jerusalem who was prophesied? There's all sorts of prophecies, promises in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills throughout his life or in the manner of his birth or the manner of his, of his death. But there's one specific one which I want to read to you. And you need to understand, these people at the time, they would have known the scriptures. Lots of them, they would have grown up knowing the scriptures, reciting them, learning them, knowing the promises of the one who was to come. It's a really important, really important for them, the Messiah, the one who was to come. And they would have known this prophecy. In Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Behold, your king is coming. You see, this moment, from the perspective of the disciples, is one they've been waiting for. All they've seen, all the questions they've been asking of Jesus, the stories he's told about his work and what is happening at this time, they're coming to a head at this moment when Jesus publicly proclaims himself. Jesus publicly says, this is who I am. Let's just read this again. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. He's going into Jerusalem. Even at this moment, as the disciples have been spending time with Jesus and they're thinking, who is this? Is he the chosen one of God? They've got to be thinking, we're going to Jerusalem. This is important. And they come up to the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. You can imagine the cogs turning as they go, hang on, is this, we're going to get the, these two guys, they're unnamed, they go and get this donkey, which, it, is this the moment of that prophecy fulfilled? Is this the, and if anyone asks you why are you untying it, you should say this, the Lord has need of it. Listen, this isn't, this isn't, um, some mystical phrase. This is Jesus saying, the Lord has need of it. We are going to show the world who I am in this moment. So they were sent away and found it as he had told them. And as they went, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said, why are you untying it? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now, there's no mention of the owners complaining. I'm going to suggest their cogs are turning. They're going, hold on. You're taking this donkey. You're, is this really happening? They bring it to Jesus. They put their cloaks on it and set Jesus on it. 
and he starts to ride along. You can imagine. They know this prophecy. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Behold, the king. So what do they do? These are people who, they're his disciples, they're his followers, which doesn't mean the same as today. Today it might mean you, you follow an Instagram account and you listen to their podcasts and you read their books. and It doesn't mean that. These are people who have left their homes, their jobs. They've gone to learn at the feet of Jesus. They've given up everything. And they're there and they see Jesus and this is the king. What do I do? I, I know what I've got. I've got my cloak. I've got this last thing. I'm going to take this and I will lay it down. What do we do? We have our voices. We can proclaim this moment. The whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The King has come. The king has come. Maybe not exactly as we expected. This isn't a king in a golden carriage. He's not wearing rich robes. He's not at the head of an army. But this is the king who was prophesied. I want to go on and read you verses 39. We've read 39, but we're going to stick with 39 and 40. Let's see Jesus' answer to the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones will cry out. What an amazing response. What an incredible response. You see, Jesus is saying, I'm not just the king of this city that I'm going into. I'm not just the king of Israel, the son of David. He's saying, I am the king of the cosmos. I am the king of all creation. He's saying right here at this moment when I proclaim publicly who I am, if these people don't cry out, the very earth will cry out. The whole earth itself waiting, expectant for the unveiling. We see the same in in Romans 8 where it says the the earth groans expectantly for the unveiling of the sons of glory. He is the king of the whole cosmos. Who you see when you see Jesus changes how you see everything. Now, I want to speak for a few moments to, to those who are here. If you are a Christian... And you know Jesus, and you know this. You, you know Jesus is king. It's what we sing about. Jesus is king. You know that. I want to suggest to us this morning, though, we can be a bit like the disciples. You see, these guys, they've been with him. They've, been, they've seen it all. They've seen, they've seen enough to know this is the king. And yet in this moment, they really know this is the king. You see, it changes everything when we get it. When we get it right here. When we get it right here. When we know he's the 
king. He's the king of everything. One thing we see in this is that if he's the king, his timing is perfect. You've got all this build up to this moment. Jesus knows. And he goes, up ahead, there's the donkey. He knows. His, the king's timing is perfect. Sometimes, sometimes Christian life is waiting, right? We're waiting for something. We're waiting for the next job. We're waiting for, are we going to get at the house? Is this relationship going to work out? I don't know. And I can't put the pieces together. This is so important to get really deep down. The king's timing is perfect. He's the king. Not me, not you, not us. He's the king. He's the one who works out his timing. It says in the word, he works out all things for the good of those who love him. If he's the king... What's required from us is obedience. The disciples are given this request to go and get this donkey. You can get, even, even though they get it, they begin to get it. They're thinking, are we really going to go and take this donkey? Are we really going to go and untie it? This is a pretty unusual request. There's... Um, I think when you're, you're growing in your faith and you're, you're trying to hear God, you're trying to think, how can I be obedient to you? We can get this idea that if I, when I get like really good at it, when I get like really good at being a Christian, I'm going to really hear him. It's going to be like, yep, yeah, done. Oh, hey, yeah, yeah, here we go. We can get this idea that as we become mature Christians, we're going to hear more clearly. We're just going to be like audible voice time. It just isn't the case. Mature Christian doesn't look like hearing more clearly. Mature Christianity, following the King of Kings, looks like obeying more quickly. At the still, small voice. At the waiting for his timing. When he speaks, now's the time. Right now, I'm in a bit of a valley of decision. I, I'm, I'm, I feel like I can't be in the job I'm in. I've got a, there's, there's something else out there and I would just love to just go and find it. Job search, let's find that job. Let's do this, okay, application time. Let's get it out there. I'm going to make this happen. I could make it happen, right? I, I, could, I could. I could make it happen. If I know he is the king, actually, my job's to wait. My job's to wait until he says, go looking. My job's to wait until he says, that's the opportunity. My job's to wait until he says, push that door. My job isn't to grab and grab and grab at each thing because maybe I'll find what the path is. No, no, no. He's the king. He's the king. His timing is perfect. What does he require? Obedience. If Jesus is our king... The only right response is worship. The only right response is worship. That's where the disciples come to. 
that they get that their own personal glory and perhaps like comfort and everything about them is, is insignificant because he's the king of everything. They take even their cloaks, they go, look, I've got this is the last thing. Let's do this. Honestly, I would love a big house in the country. Right? I just would. I just would. You watch Friday and you're like, oh, that's a nice house, isn't it? Like, but it's not what God said. So what do I do with that dream? Take it off and I lay it down. <laughs> it's painful, right? Because you go, I wanted, I, wanted, I wanted the comfort and I wanted... And I want to go and search because I want the job with the money, but I take off the dream and I lay it down because it's not what God has said. That's what worship looks like. That's what Jesus says. We're going to worship in spirit and in truth. True worship is taking off all of ourselves and laying it down at the feet of the king and saying, my job is to wait, is to be obedient, and is to worship. that's how we say he's the king let me say one more thing about if Jesus is the king it means he is the king all the time in our darkest moments in the storm we are not alone far from it Christ is king I'm going to come back to that let me speak to you just just uh, briefly, if you are here and you're, you're not a Christian, you're looking in at this and you're hearing some of this, and you're thinking, okay, wow. How do you, how do you even go about like, laying things down? How, do you, how can you be a bit, how can you listen? I want, I want to just speak to you for a moment about what this looks like, seeing him for the first time as king. I'm going to read to you the last few verses, verses 41 to 44. It's going to come up behind me. It says, When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. I want us to just talk about this briefly to understand what kind of king Jesus is. What kind of king Jesus is. And I want to talk to you about one very specific thing Jesus is talking about. I want want to use that to help us think about generally us. And then I want to talk to you about one more thing. I want to talk to you about free temples, free places of worship. Because what Jesus is talking about here, he's talking about the city of Jerusalem. And he's talking about the temple within it. He's talking about this place which is the centre of the life of Israel. It's the centre, it's the place where they come to worship the temple. He's talking about this. This is the very centre. This is what Jewish life is built around. And he's weeping because he knows... He is prophesying a day when it will all come tumbling down. It, happens in, it happened in AD 70. The whole of Jerusalem is raised. The, the temple is destroyed. No stone stands upon another. It's completely destroyed. 
Jesus weeps because he knows, actually, these buildings, these edifices, these things that we've created and placed, these things won't save. Don't hear what I'm not saying in terms of the history of the people of Israel and the importance of the temple. Hear what I'm saying now because Jesus knows who he is. I want to help you think about this if you're not a Christian. This place, this place of worship, the very center, actually that exists for all of us. All people, we all worship. We all do this thing called worship. We set up a center. We say, that is my number one. That is the very center of me. That is what I am driving for. That is my hope and my dream, whether it is big house in the country, whether it is money, whether it is power or sex or beauty or fame, that thing that drives me, the thing that is at the very center of my core that I say, everything else, I lay down for that goal, that thing. You see, Jesus is alive and Jesus weeps for us, for people who have set up something which will not save them, which will not satisfy, something which eventually will come tumbling down. Whatever we set up in the center of ourselves as our king, our place of worship, it will not last. There's only one. There's only one worthy of worship. There's only one place where we can be fully satisfied. You see, Jesus predicts um, the destruction of another temple. Elsewhere in the Gospels, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. Raise it up. There's this one temple, one place where we can come and worship, which will, although it has been destroyed, it's now risen. And it will never fail. The temple Jesus is talking about is himself. You see, a week from this, this is what we're going to be talking about over this series, this week, called the Passion, this week in Jesus' life. A week from this moment, Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the great ruler of the cosmos, cosmos, he himself was nailed to a cross. His body is broken, his blood is spilt, the lamb is sacrificed. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble. And this time, mounted not on a donkey, mounted finally at his true and greatest triumph, mounted on the cross. It's at the Mount of Olives where he's publicly proclaimed before the people of Jerusalem as the king of kings, and it is on the cross where Jesus once and for all, disarms all rulers and all authorities. It's at the cross where the triumphant one, the triumphant one is proclaimed before the whole cosmos. Why does Jesus weep? I want to draw you to just this one, one last line. It says, um, because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know what had come to you. You did not know. You didn't see it. You didn't see it. 
You see, Jesus, after dying on the cross, three days later, he rises again. The temple's rebuilt. And now he is the one who lives and reigns forever. The one who rules at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The one who forever speaks on our behalf. The one who lives, who we can call on. Christ in us, our hope of glory. You see, for us, for, for people here, people who call Revelation, people who know Jesus, something's happened. When Jesus spoke about those stones crying out, it is an echo of something. Because there's another place in the Bible where it speaks about our hearts. It speaks about our hearts being stones. This is, this is what he does when we see him for who he is. He takes our hearts of stone. He takes our hearts of stone and makes them cry out for him. And he makes them hearts of flesh. Living and knowing him, alive in him, through him, and living for him. How can we do, how can we do the laying down of stuff? Because we know who he is. We've seen him. He is the king of kings. What do you have to do then? If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're thinking, well, okay, maybe this is something I want to, I want to do something about this. This is all you have to do. You have to see that this is the time of his visitation. He, he is the one who is present. He is the one who lives. He is the one who is here. He is the one that calls to you. It's why we worship. Why is there that echo within us all that we must worship? Because we know there is one worth worshipping. Behold, the king is coming to you. When we see Jesus for who he is, it changes how we see everything. Jesus, we, we see you. Lord, we, we say you are king. We say you are the great king. We say there's no one like you, Lord. We say our lives, we want them to be dependent on you. Lord, we ask, Lord, would you open eyes this morning? Would you open our eyes to see you more? Would you open eyes for the first time this morning, Lord? We know you are the one who turns our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Would you open eyes this morning? Amen.